Our Father and our God, we thank you for another day. We thank you for another period in which we can come before you to learn at your feet. Be that we exalted in the name of Jesus. Father, Lord God, it is by your grace that I am here. It is by your grace that I speak. Father, speak through me today in the name of Jesus. Father, Lord God, I ask that you take away every sense of self, any sense of performance, any, self or any sense of anything else that is not you. Father, you take it away in the name of Jesus. That, Lord God, your words will be spoken. Your word says that if we add to your word, there's a problem. If we take away from it, there's a problem. Lord God, I would not add or take away from your word, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And Lord, even as we learn at your feet today, these, these words will nourish our lives and will teach us and will grow us, Father, to be better and more effective children for you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. For it's in Jesus' name I have prayed. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> welcome to another Wednesday Bible study. We are going to be looking once more at the topic of anointing. We are continuing with the anointing series. Um, this is our third lesson. Um, we've had two others. And in the first one, we learned about what the anointing is. We learned that it is the power of the Holy Spirit um, that is put upon or is made available to believers to do the work of God. Uh, we learned about how we can grow the anointing in our lives and what it does for us. The second time that we met, we also talked about the anointing, but this time we talked about it in effect to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the offices of God. We spoke about the three main offices that existed in the Old Testament, which was of the king, the priest, and the prophet. And uh, we also then spoke about the offices in the New Testament, which we could find in the book of Ephesians, who talks about the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, the prophet, and the apostle. Uh, we spoke about how the anointing works in those offices, and we talked about the dangers of the anointing, the dangers of standing in an office that is not yours, and the danger of doing what you're not supposed to do. Um, so today, we're going to be talking on the corporate anointing. This is a very fascinating one, and um, I want us to open our Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 26. Um, from verse eight to ten, are we there? If if you're there, let's uh, wave a hand. Okay, seems we're still waiting for one or two people. Are we all there now? Awesome. Right. So the Bible says, um, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 8, it says, And five of you shall chase an hundred, and an hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. And ye shall eat old store and bring forth the old and bring forth the old because of the new. Amen. 
Amen. Um, so to start off, we're going to start our we're going to start our discussion or our conversation with something fascinating. We're going to talk a bit about the corporation. So, and I really think um, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that God made me do this masters for things like this because <laughs> I find so many interesting parallels between law as a course of study and the word of God. And I can understand it because at the end of the day, God instituted law. We humans just use a watered-down version of it and a, an imperfect uh, method of it. In, in God's law, there is no, as we call it, lacuna, <laughs> which essentially there's no loophole, there's no pit, so there's nothing that one can, you know, bend and twist even though people still try to. But we're going to talk about the corporation. So what is a corporation? As many of us would know, we we'll call them companies today. What are these things? What, what are they? Because they are a very fascinating entity within the legal sphere. So if you think of a company, um, essentially you think to yourself that, okay, it's a bunch of people that came together to make money. If I just put it in the simplest format, uh, if I want to use legalese and everything, you start saying stuff like, oh, it's uh, when two so, or so more people gather together to form a company and go about the business for the purpose of commercial profits or whatever as the case may be. But at the end of the day, if I to break it down to its base form, it's a bunch of people that come together to make money. Uh, but the interesting thing of the corporation is when these people come together to make money, they become a human being. They be, or what they call a legal entity. So in the eyes of the law, a company is essentially a human being. So the corporate body has been in existence for ages, but it wasn't always like that. In the early times, um, just in the early 80s, so to speak, Essentially, what happened was that a bunch of people would come together and they would put up capital. They would put up capital. So, person A would bring his five naira, person B would bring his ten naira, person C would bring his own amount of money. They put it together and say, okay, A, B, and C are going to be going on a joint venture. And they'll go about it. And when they do it and all of that, whatever profits that they make from it, they'll take it and they'll share it according to the stake that they had in the company. So if person person B who has put in 10 naira essentially will get more profits than person A who had put in 5 naira. And that's how it worked for a while. But as time went on, the, the idea of the corporation started to evolve. And it was around the Middle Ages um, in England that we had what was called the Royal Charters. Now, the Royal Charter... Sorry for this long history lesson, but I think it's actually quite important. So, a royal charter is an instrument of the crown, which is the monarchy. It was an instrument of the crown that could give legal personality to a body of people to then act as a human being. So, initially, these charters were granted to ecclesiastical bodies. So, essentially, monasteries, churches, and so on and so forth. They were given the power. So you would hear, like even way back then, oh, the church did this. The church was powerful enough to do this, this, X, Y, Z. And after they started to do that, they started to give it to state-owned 
bodies and so on and so forth. And then after a while, it continued to evolve until individuals could then apply for royal charters and be given or be granted the royal charter. So, for instance, um, if we remember some of our history, we remember that when the when Nigeria was being you know formed, we were under the Royal Niger Company. For instance, the Royal Niger Company existed because of a royal charter, because they went, they applied for a royal charter, they got one, and they became a company, a legal entity. So, what is this legal entity thing I'm talking about? Like I said, it's essentially becoming a human being in the eyes of the law. What that means is that a company can sue and be sued. A company can be held accountable for a crime. A company can sue someone that, oh, my rights have been breached and all of that kind of stuff. And they are given compensation and they are listened to like they were regular, normal human beings like you and me. And back then, you needed about seven people to start a company. Because if if we're inferring from the case of Salomon versus Salomon, mommy mentioned it the last time that she was here. It was a fascinating case. Uh, I don't want to go into the details. It just take too much time. But it was interesting. But as time has gone on, we've gotten to a point whereby, at least according to the Companies and Allied Matters Act of 2020, two people are eligible to form a company. Two people can form a company now and have all the rights and everything that a regular company will have. So, we've spoken about legal entities. We've spoken about how these things work. What does any of this have to do with the corporate anointing? You might wonder. You might have an inkling, but you might wonder to yourself that, okay, he's been going on and on about corporate identity, what's the corporate, uh, what's the corporate form, what's the legal entity, what does this have to do with the corporate anointing? From what we've learned, we have learned that the anointing is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables believers to do God's work, right? That's, that's, that's what we said, right? Am I wrong? You guys look like you don't believe me. Am I wrong? Okay, awesome. So, if we go with that, it follows that a corporate anointing is the power of the Holy Ghost upon a group of people. It's the power of the Holy Ghost upon a group of people. Now, what is interesting here is that while it's the group of people, essentially, they are one person. And who is this one person? That's what we know as the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ, right? But we are not the body of Christ as individual. But we are the body of Christ as a collective. So it is when we come together that we then say that we are the body of Christ. And the anointing or the corporate anointing essentially is the power of the Holy Ghost put upon the church to be able to carry out the work of God. So, what does then that mean? What does that mean then for, you know, we have the body of Christ, the global body of Christ, but then we have the simple gospel fellowship. You know, we have the Redeemed Christian Church of God. We have um, Kingsway International Christian Center and all the different kinds of church or churches. What does this mean for them? So, we'll talk very briefly, a lot, lot briefer than the last introduction that I just gave, but we'll talk basically about head offices and branches. So, we know about the concept of a branch, whereby you have a main office that is in 
Abuja or is in some other place, and then you have a branch office that is somewhere else. Or you have a main office that is in the United States of America, and then you have branch offices in various countries all around the world. And while this is not a perfect analogy, it is something interesting because there are two major kinds of branches that you find. There's a dependence branch and there's an independent branch. Now, a dependent branch essentially relies wholly on the head office. Like, there's absolutely, there's nothing they can do on their own. Everything that they're doing, even their invoices have to come from the main office, like everything has come from the main office. But we have independent branches. Now, these independent branches, they are not separate legal entities from the main office or the main company. However, they do have the power to pursue their own goals or even use a different name if they want to. If they want to use a different name of the company and all of that, they can do that if they want to. And then they have, they have their own rules, they have their own things. The internal policies are the same of the main um, company. They have the same internal policies, they have the same, essentially, the rules that guide them, but they are allowed to tweak certain things. So, for instance, if you have phones are a great example. So, you have a company like Xiaomi that's it's, um, it's Chinese and they do their phones and they do all of that, but then there are certain brands of Xiaomi that they will release to Nigeria specifically while you won't be able to find some other ones in nigeria why it's made for that particular climate the idea is that, okay it works for these people so it's there so in a sense there is a certain level of independence for these branches so i hope you are still following me <laughs> and in the same vein we have something similar with the body of christ we have a global body which encompasses every single person but we also have our churches and while these churches do not while these churches are not separate as a body from the from the main church they do have they do have the right to do certain things different they have the right to do certain things in so if we are following through with this particular reasoning what that tells us is that if the global church has an anointing then even the individual churches also have an anointing amen so, if, we, if the global church needs empowerment from on high to carry out a certain task, then it only makes sense that other branches or other cells or other churches also have, um, they also have the anointing available to them to be able to carry out the work of God. Yes or no? Awesome. Good that you're still following me. So, with all of that being said, we can then look at a couple of things. The company is infinitely more powerful than the individual. Can we accept that? So, essentially, a company would always have more assets than the individual. The individual can have a lot of assets, they can have a lot of things, but at the end of the day, because the company essentially is a mix or a, um, an addition of all of these assets, they always tend to have more the company also has a greater sphere of influence in society under normal circumstances because they can reach places that the individual cannot reach. So, for instance, Google as a company holds a lot more sway than its CEO, for example. 
Because while the CEO is incredibly well-connected and powerful as a human being, cannot beat the power of Google. Google can do and undo all over the world as much as they want to. They own YouTube, they own Gmail, they own all these other things that you know work for them. So as a company, they're infinitely more powerful. As a company, they have infinitely more assets. This is the same thing with the body of Christ, in that as the body of Christ, we also are infinitely more powerful together as believers than any one individual. Can we agree with that? So, when we look at that, and we understand the corporate anointing as being the power put upon us by the Holy Spirit to carry out the work that we do, or the work that we have to do, then, I guess the next question that we then have to ask ourselves is, what then is this work? So, if, if the individual has work to do, then it also means that the collective also has work to do, because... The Holy Spirit would not empower somebody or anything if he did not have anything to do. Because then, what is the use? So, for that particular um, question, I guess we should turn to the book of Mark, chapter 16. Incredibly popular. We all know it. We all know what's there. We all know what it's talking about. But... um, Uh, sorry, I think I made a mistake. It's Matthew, Matthew 28, please. Okay. Matthew 28, from verse 19 to verse 20. And I will read. The Bible says, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We all know that this is a great commission. But what a lot of people seem to miss is that this commission, just as some people will say, oh, it was only given to the disciples and be wrong, it will also be wrong for us to say it was simply given to the disciples and individual believers. Because the Great Commission wasn't simply given to the disciples. It wasn't simply given to individual believers. It was also given to the church. This is a job. The job of reconciliation has been given, not to individuals, but to the very body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is supposed to people unto God to reconcile with the Father so that they too can have eternal life. Amen. So, if that is the case, if that's the job that we're going to do, how then are we equipped for it? How do we... We talked about this one. We talked about personal um, anointing. And we talked about how it can be grown and it should be refilled regularly, as often as possible. So in the case of the church, or in the case of the corporate body, how is this done? The first thing that is done, as is written here, is praise. We've spoken about this, 
And uh, for that, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter five. Second Chronicles, chapter five. Are we there? Are we there? If we're there, please let's wave our hands. Okay. Seems we're still waiting for one person. First Chronicles chapter 5. And we'll be reading from verse 11. I'd like us to read together from verse 11 to verse 14. One, two, go. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also, the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Haman, of Jetuthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. And it came to pass, or it came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound, to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house of was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Amen. So for quick context, this was during this was just before the dedication of the temple. So Solomon um, was David's successor. And he's, he's best remembered for his building of the temple, the great and mighty temple that stood in Jerusalem until the um, Babylonians came to ransack the city and burn it down. But up until that time, it was like the most magnificent structure on the entire planet. Like, if you read through these things and you say everything was of the purest gold, they didn't say everything was of gold, everything was of pure gold, of the purest gold. So the purest of the pure, so probably the gold had been refined again and again and again and again and again, just to ensure that those things were being put in the house of God, the best of the very best. And when all of these things had been done, it was now time to then essentially let the owner of the house move in. You know, like, okay, oh, we've built your house, so we've done everything, okay, move in. But they didn't, they didn't just, you know, pick up the phone and be like, yo, God, your house is ready, what's up? come down and enter into your house. They didn't do any other thing. What did they do instead? It said here that they raised up their voices and they praised. Not only, now, if you notice something interesting about the praises or the praising that they did, it says that they lifted up their voices as one. So it says in verse 13, and it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. They did it in, it was one sound. Now, sometimes you might 
that might be hard to think about when you when you think about it because if you're in a place where there are a bunch of people whether they are singing or whatever as the case may be you you can hear some discordance because you're like oh okay this person is doing this this person is doing this this person is doing this it's even worse when the people that are singing are not trained so if you have a choir you can still be like oh okay there's harmony it's harmonized but then in the house of god like it's filled with all different sorts of people so not everybody is going to be a skilled singer. Not everyone is going to have the voice of an angel. So everyone will not be able to sing to save their lives. However, it still says here that it was one voice. Because their hearts were one. In that moment in time, their hearts were united in purpose. In that moment in time, every single one of them was thinking and praying the same thing. We want God to come to his house. And he did not disappoint. The Bible says that that God came down and there was a cloud and the cloud filled the place so much so that even the priests could not minister. That's to show you the level, the thickness of the anointing that came down upon that place. The power of praise can't, I can't even overemphasize it. The power of praising God cannot be overemphasized. Singing to him, telling him that he is good. Why? We say it's the it's the only thing that he considers even remotely close to food. Why are praises so so powerful? I can't answer that. It's God that chose that this thing is going to be powerful. It's going to be a potent weapon. It's going to be a potent thing. For believers to be able to do what I want them to do. We say praise is a weapon of war. This is very true. I mean, uh, I don't know if you remember when we were talking about strength and courage. And we talked about Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. um, The Assyrians. And when they came and what happened. If you remember, the Assyrians had come and had mocked the Judeans. Telling them that they should not... Um, they should not rely on God. That this God they are relying on is not going to do anything for you. That have gone to many countries, gone to many empires, and have crushed them and their God together. That was your own going to do. And Jehoshaphat, who was king at the time, called the people to pray. And when it was time for them to go to war, they didn't carry swords and shields. They didn't go to battle with, oh, okay, let's go and fight and everything. It was the singers that were in front. And they sang, and they were praising God. And before you know what was going on, the angel of God had smitten the entire army of the Assyrians. Smitten the entirety of them. They all lay there dead. The Israelites didn't even have to raise one finger. The power of praise, I can't even begin to overestimate it. And the second thing that we have written here is prayer. And for that, I want us to turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 from verse 23. Acts chapter 4 verse 23. And the Bible says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. 
and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's, that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, and where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. Amen. This was after Peter and John had been taken before the Sanhedrin, and they had told them that they shouldn't preach again, they shouldn't speak the name of the Lord again. And um, in that moment, they had said that, we're still going to go ahead and do it, we're still going to go ahead and do it. But what you find out is interesting here is that when they went back to their own people, and they all came together. The Bible tells us that they were of one accord. They lifted up their voice as one. And they prayed. And they prayed. Not only did they pray, they prayed for boldness. Which means that it's very possible that by the time Peter and John got back, the, the anointing that they had that they were dealing with, with the reason to deal with the Sanhedrin was gone. And they were suddenly feeling weak again. And they needed what? They needed to pray for a refilling. They needed to pray for a refill. God is not a God of scarcity. We've been going through a false scarcity for over a month, but God is not like that. He always has more than enough. And they say they raised up their voice as one to pray. Now think about that for a second. I mean, we've all been at, we've all been in gatherings of believers, and we all come together. There is no way we all say the same words, unless it's something like something formatted like the Lord's Prayer, for instance, or the Grace. Then because it's the grace, then we all read the same thing or we all say the same thing. But generally speaking, if they say we lift up our voices to pray, we're not saying the same thing. I might be saying, uh, Father, Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth, the sky and the sea. And someone else might be saying that, uh, Lord, you are from the beginning, you are, you are now, and you will you forever be. Different people, different things. But at the end of the day, when, what was being written here was one, which means that as we're all praying, and I believe that a lot of them were praying in the spirit, God heard one message. He heard one thing that they were saying, one message that they were trying to pass across. And when they prayed that prayer, the Bible says that the place that they were was shaken. It was shaken. It wasn't because there was a 0.5 earthquake or whatever as the case may be. It was the glory of God coming down. He was there to hear his children and said we all failed. And they had boldness and they stepped out. That's another thing that we have to note there. They didn't simply receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Say, oh Lord, thank you for this anointing that you filled us with. Let us now go home to grind chicken. No. They were filled with the anointing of God. I said they were filled with boldness. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. 
The church has a job. The church has a purpose. The job. The, the church has a mission. And that's to reconcile people. The Bible talks about how Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It's quite interesting when you think of the concept of a net. A net is an instrument for catching fish. But if you notice, the net, the net is made up of interconnected that come together to catch the fish. I believe it's a type of the church. Because they're united, they're not broken. They're able to catch the fish for God. To be able to do what God has put out for us to do. And you might be thinking at this point, you're saying that, well, they have a whole congregation of people, and when they come together, of course, great things are going to happen. But that's not always the case. If we turn our Bibles to the book of that same Acts, chapter 16. This again is another very popular story. Verse 25. Um, the Bible says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the sh- prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Amen. Paul and Silas was two people, right? I mean, we sing the song all the time. Paul and Silas, they prayed, they sang, the Holy Ghost came down. They said an earthquake hits the place. It was not a normal earthquake. If it was a normal earthquake, the God wouldn't have been trembling as much because it's just been an earthquake that, oh, okay, it's a normal this thing. And interestingly, when it was, which earthquake have you ever heard that hit a place and there's only chains that fell? There's only doors that opened. It wasn't, it wasn't, like, I mean, we've read about earthquakes. We've probably seen one or two on the news and everything. And we see the utter devastation that it brings to wherever it goes. But here it was, they said there was an earthquake. That means the place shook. But it wasn't buildings breaking and people's heads being smashed in. No. People's bones were being broken and the prison doors were being opened. That tells us something. That tells us something very important. It tells us that the anointing, the corporate anointing that comes upon the people of God in prayer and in praise is meant to do the work of reconciling people to Christ. And it does that in various ways. It does that with signs. It does that with wonders. Because in this particular situation, there are two people the Bible says that where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. So it did not need a crowd. Paul did not need to form an association of 
prison believers and they all came together and said, okay, let's now, let's sing and clap and let's, maybe something will not happen. No, it was two people. Two people were able to bring about that effect. Chains were broken. Doors were opened. And it's the same thing even today. When the corporate anointing comes down upon the body of Christ, things happen. People break down. They're broken before God. They're, they're broken down. They're crying. They want to give their lives to Christ. They want to change the way that they are. They want to live the life that they've been living behind and come on to give their lives to Christ and believe. There was a testimony that I read of once, I, um, I believe it was by Kenneth Hagen, who talked about how one of his churches that he was pastoring at the time, they had come to this place of oneness in which they could sing, they could pray, and the manifest presence of God would come down into the place. And that sometimes it would come down and all of them would just be silent. They would just be quiet. And they would just sit down there staring at nothing in particular for ages and ages and ages. There was no need for anything. They are just being fed by the Spirit. And he gave um, the testimony of how a woman with her husband who was not saved would usually come, drop out of her church and go somewhere to go and kick about as the case may be and one day he wherever he went to whether he didn't move the window open or something happened and said okay he'll come back to the church and wait for his wife to finish and he said he goes to the parking lot and he parked his car and he was waiting and then he looked at the church and he was like wait though normally if you come to a church people are clapping people are praising the lord so it's utter silence I didn't hear a single thing. Before you know what was going on, this guy, this guy began to shake, started to worry that, wait, though, is it that rapture has happened? And I missed it. And all the God's people have been taken away and have been left behind. And like, I don't know, th- there are times in my life where I've had that feeling in my life. There was a, I can't remember, a number of years ago when I think, uh, I think Twitter was down and I had been tweeting and tweeting and tweeting and then suddenly I couldn't reach anything then I called. Then I started to call some of my friends that were Christian and everything, and they were not picking up the phone. And I'd not see them online. I'd not seen status updates. I'd not seen anything. And I said to them, I said, wait, though. Wait, though. What's going on? And I, I think the internet even went bad or something funny like that. And I was like, wait, what's going on? Has, has it happened? Has it finally happened? And I, was, I really was terrified until things go back to normal and I was like, oh, okay, it was just it was just a blip. And the man was in a similar state and he said, what's he going to do? I said, okay, you know what, he'll go into the church and I could just see what's going on. And he went to the church expecting that he would look inside and just find clothes on the floor and everyone else is gone. And he entered the church and he said, ah, wait, everybody was still there. They're just silent. And he wondered what was going on and he sat down for a while kind of like looking at, okay, is this some weird cult practice or whatever as the case may be and and as the story went, suddenly he got up and started crying. And he rushed to the altar. And he lay on the altar and he was screaming and screaming for God to help him, to have mercy on him, to save him. That's the power of the corporate anointing. Nobody had to touch him. Nobody had to preach to him. Nobody had to tell him anything. It says the Holy Spirit that convicts man of sin. So if the Holy Spirit that convicts man of sin, then he's the one that would do the job. Our job is simply to evangelize, to pray, to praise. And as a church body, as a collective, it is what we're supposed to do. Now, 
all of these things that we are talking about would not be possible without one incredibly important ingredient, and that is unity. We've talked about unity. We've heard about unity. Everyone has said, unity, unity, we need to be united, we need to be united. But we need to understand something. Our unity has to be godly. Our unity has to be godly. If you read the book of Genesis, chapter 11, if I'm correct, I think that's that tells the account of the Tower of Babel. And it talks about how the because they were of all one language and they were of one mind and they decided to build this tower that would reach into the sky. And when I was a kid, I used to wonder to myself that, okay, how much would they have had to build to reach heaven if they had kept building and they built out of space or out of the earth? Would they have seen God? Of course, now I know that even if they had continued building for a million years, they would have reached heaven. However, even with that, God still found it important to scatter them. And we have been taught on this altar before that Jesus doesn't simply bring, um, he said that he, he's the prince of peace. He doesn't simply just bring peace for the sake of it. He doesn't simply bring peace for everyone. No, it's godly peace. And it's the same thing here. If we're going to have the corporate anointing, we're supposed to walk in the corporate anointing. We need a godly unity. In the, in the passage that we just read in Acts chapter 4 would, or in fact, Acts, the book of Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts chapter 2, we hear about the Pentecost. That's when Pentecost happened, and they were all together in one accord, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they received the gift of tongues, and they had boldness. You'll notice two things. In Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 4, in fact, I think I should read it. Acts chapter 2, I'll read quickly. Da, 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 da. So if we look at the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'll read from verse 42. The Bible says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that, be and all that believed were together, and had all things common and sold their possession and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Amen. Chapter 4, I'll read real quick from verse 32. The Bible says that, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they all had things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man, according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, 
and of the country of Cyprus, having land, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I went through two slightly lengthy passages of scripture, but one thing is very interesting. Every time there was an encounter with the Holy Spirit and they received the corporate anointing, he gave them the ability to walk united. And it was through this, through that walking in unity, through that fellowship, through that prayer, through that praise, that the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, that and God added to them daily as each was saved. So the corporate anointing, is incredibly important because it changes streets, cities, towns, countries. It changes whole areas. Revival starts from this. We look, we talk about the church in Nigeria as being in need of revival. We talk about the church in Nigeria of needing a, a wake-up call. Well, this is it. When we as believers gather together as a body and we praise the Lord with one heart and we pray with one mind and with one voice and we walk together in unity. It will cause a change. Every revival that I have heard about usually started with something like this. One person hit by the Holy Ghost and then it becomes two people coming in together, three people and before you know what's going on, it grows and grows and grows. And it becomes a thick mist, a cloud. I was reading uh, a testimony about a town that experienced revival. They said a boy was in school and he was sent home. And a friend of his preached the gospel to him. And the boy came back to school and entered his class and stood in front of it and said, Well, he's happy he has been saved, that he believes in Christ Jesus now that his life has never been better. And he walked out of the class praising God. And under normal circumstances, they're like, okay. But what happened? The person that was giving the testimony, telling the story, said that one by one, every boy started to get up and started to walk out of the class. And they all went to the playground and they all fell on their knees. And they started to wail and started to scream to God for mercy, to have mercy on them, to, to help them, to be with them, to accept them as children. And as he did that, it spread to the next floor. And then everyone came out. And before you knew what was going on, it was the entire school. And when a town has a revival like that, it becomes like a cloud, a stick. Anyone who is coming into that town feels it. They talked about, there was another story of a man who heard that there was something happening in one of these um, little towns. And, it was, and they were saying that there's something strange about that town. And he was like, ah, what is it? It's not just Christians. This is this. And he said he went into the town. And when he went into the town... Every, every, all the business he wanted to conduct there, he just found that he was incredibly uncomfortable. He couldn't talk. He was just pressed by something. He knew that this was not a normal town. This was just, just normal people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, all, every single one of them. And he said by the time he went back home, he just he couldn't mock the town anymore. Soon after, he gave his life to Christ. The power of the corporate anointing cannot be overemphasized. If we are looking for revival in these end times, or as we seek revival, as we seek changing the world, or as we seek bringing the world to Christ, we are going to need this. We are all going to need to come together as one. To be able to 
call out to God, to cry out to God. Because then we have the power to do what he wants us to do, which is the work of reconciliation. Reconciliation, evangelism. Evangelism isn't simply speaking the word of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, he said he didn't just come there with words or with eloquent words. He said he came there with demonstrations of power. They say that evangelists, more often than not, usually have the gift of healings. Why? Because it's effective. As, as they're preaching to people, they also heal them. Because that's part of the work of reconciliation. The work of reconciliation breaks us free from sin, but also from sickness, disease, death. And if we're going to have a revival in this end times, this is the level that the church is going to need to reach. Because we are one body. We are a spiritual entity before God. We have a job as a church. We have a job as a bunch of people. The Simple Gospel Fellowship has a job. We may have different ways in doing it. This ministry is particularly effective in healing and deliverance. For some others, it's something different. For some others, it's a different way. However, the job remains the same. It's the job of reconciliation, bringing people to Christ, bringing people to the knowledge of the Father. And if we are going to be effective in these last days, that's something that we are going to need to do. We are going to need to walk together as one. We are going to have to raise our voices as one to praise the Lord. We are going to have to raise our voices as one to pray to God. And you will hear us because it's his work. He will always provide for it. I may the Lord help us in Jesus' name.